Welcome to the Triple Point Podcast, a podcast for those working at the intersection of weather and climate, technology, and society. We focus on innovators and leaders working to make our communities safe and resilient in the face of a dynamic and ever-changing world. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff Cunningham. And I'm Ryan Harris. And this week, Jeff and I talk about the importance of sensing technology, particularly land, air, and sea observations that set the critical foundation for numerical weather models that produce weather forecasts every day. Such temperature, humidity, pressure, wind, river gauges, soil moisture, and other environmental measurements provide crucial updates to improve forecast tracks for high impact events like Hurricane Ian, for instance. Stay tuned next week as we welcome a special guest host to join us from TerraWatch Space Podcast to help us talk about Earth observation sensing technology. For now, though, let's dive into sensing technology a little closer to home. Well, good morning, Ryan. How are you doing? I'm good. Apologies if you hear the sounds of nature. I'm sitting in the backyard here just soaking it up. It's in the it's in the low 60s here in Florida and well, on the coast of Florida, but it's colder where you are. Oh, I'm not that far from the coast. Let's see. Current temperature is 55 degrees. Yeah. See people wearing coats up in New York and it's it's going to be that time of year, fall. How are you? How's uh how's the post hurricane Ian cleanup going for you these days? Uh, you know, it's uh it's going okay for me. I have still a tree and a limb down. Uh, that was a big tree. I saw the picture you sent. Well, there's a pine tree and then there's an oak tree limb. And the issue I had, so I have some electric battery powered chainsaws. They're fairly small. And then I have a gas power. We have a gas powered one, but that one I left fuel in and it wouldn't start. So I think it needed to be clean anyway. So we dropped it off at the small engine repair shop uh, to get that worked on. So I haven't moved all of the, the large limb or the big tree yet, cut all the small limbs off of it, took care of that. So it's always something to do on the farm. Well, and you know, mother nature doesn't stop, right? I mean, the track for Ian was right on us here in the Clearwater area. And as a Monday, at least it was, and you know, we're not, we're not in a high evacuation zone, but we ended up hightailing out of Clearwater just as a precaution, mostly because, you know, I, I wasn't super concerned about, you know, we were, I think we were far enough inland that, you know, we would have been mostly okay. We are only a mile from the water though, but I, I didn't want to deal with the power outages. I've been through a few hurricanes here in Florida, especially when I was living on the Panhandle and we were just west of Hurricane Michael, for instance. And they're just the power outages, people dealing with, you know, one, two weeks without power. I know you were without power for a little while, right? Yeah, just two days. We have some generators, so that's helpful. Though we didn't, we don't run them in the middle of the storm, but at the end when the you know power went out, we did run them for a while. One of the things that I don't think people realized is that the storm weakened a little bit in the inland. We're only 18 miles from the coast on the east side where we live, but the storm actually started re-strengthening up around the Daytona area. And that north eye wall really started kind of picking up speeds again. You got almost hurricane force winds, right? Yeah, I think so. By the 
number of trees that were down in the limbs, I think we were close to cat one, at least in the gusts. You know, sustained winds were, were pretty high, actually. Probably more tropical storm. And you know that because you got a weather sensor at the at the house, right? Well, it was not reporting very well, so... <laughs> <laughs> well, why tell me, Jeff, why wasn't reporting very well? What what's oh. one of the reasons? Well, so in the early parts of the storm, I noticed that I was the only one reporting westerly winds. And I'm thinking everybody else has easterly winds. We're on the east side of the storm and, and why why are the winds out of the west? And uh so I go investigate and I see little antenna sticking out of <laughs> the weather sensor and the uh and I'm like darn little rascal there's a bug in there so i go get a i take the weather station off the pole which is about eight feet up so i climb up there i pull it down and then uh i go in my carport get a little thing to poke out the bug and sure enough a cockroach was in there uh taking shelter <laughs> from the storm and he wasn't on the east side which is where the wind was coming in he was on the west side where the wind wasn't coming in and so he anyway he was causing the sensor to report westerly winds. And I had a 50 mile an hour gust. You saw that on my weather station. I had a yep. 50 mile an hour gust before the storm even got here. And I'm like, what the heck? And it was just this roach <laughs> hanging out. Isn't there. that isn't that amazing? So I, I remember being out at, you know, so I was stationed in Germany, Spangdala Mare Base. And, you know, we had a you know, we had three weather stations on the base. And, you know, we had special teams that would have to go out and clean the sensors to make sure that they were reporting accurately. I remember, you know, we would get in a clear day, we would get freezing drizzle <laughs> and like, there's nothing out there. You know, there's no rain. There's no even clouds in the sky for freezing drizzle to happen. And the maintenance folks go out there and lo and behold, spider has spun his web right over the precipitation sensor and it's picking up on the dew from that spider web. So, I mean, the sensors are great and important to what we do in, in the weather and climate field. But if you're getting garbage readings that go into a model, you're going to get garbage predictions out of that. So it's just, it's really amazing how, how sensitive these systems can be. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think about all these home weather stations and stuff and you know, some companies have built their livelihoods off of taking the reporting data off of them. And I can't, I, I haven't had to go through and produce data quality measurements or, or, you know, I haven't had to perform data quality on a network of home weather stations, but I would think that that's gotta be a little bit difficult. I mean, so I worked at the um, radar operations center in Norman, Oklahoma, where we had, you know, 168 WSR 88Ds, you know, these, this multi-billion dollar radar network. And, you know, we had a full team of technicians that would go on site. We had a full team of engineers back in Oklahoma. We had the support of the National Severe Storms Lab. And yet these things, which I still believe it's the highest quality radar network in the world. I mean, it's phenomenal in what it does. But still, some of these radars would fail. You know, components would occasionally fail. And it wasn't normally due to, like, insects and, you know, spiders. <laughs> there would be various reasons why it would fail. So you'd ha you had to have an active maintenance program 
to keep those sensors going. And so, you know, today we've got a several different new sensing technologies we're going to talk about, and they're going to all have their own issues to deal with. But yeah, it's definitely, uh, it's, it, it's an aspect that people don't realize about sensors. It, it's not often just set and forget. It's set, maintain, and operate, you know, there's a sustainment tail. And then, you know, the number of sensors is, is only going to continue to increase as we talk about like the internet of things and those kind of things. So I, I, I want to bring it back to Hurricane Ian for a second, because I think it's, it probably grounds a lot of our discussion today to some extent. So one of the things I wrote in, you know, an article we posted in the Triple Point podcast was the shift in track. And you and I talked through the storm and afterwards about that shift. And the track is always shifting because we're getting new sensing information being put into the models. You've got all these different global models that initialize the weather information differently based on those observations. And I mean, no kidding, in 24 hours, the center of the track from the National Hurricane Center shifted 130 miles, which is pretty significant. You know, I think Fort Myers was always in the cone of uncertainty. And so they were just barely on the edge for most of it. And what I wrote in this article is that, you know, that that shift was big enough that the storm surge forecast went from five to 15 feet with really less than 30 hours awareness for a community like, you know, Fort Myers, Cape Coral, and Naples. And so I'm not going to get into the Monday morning quarterback should the evacuation orders been done sooner. But I will say that that shift in track happens because of new information better information, hopefully. Um, in this case, it was better information, but it was, it was too late for a lot of communities to really take appropriate action. So one of the things I wanted to talk about today whereas we're talking about sensing technology is the importance of observations for modeling. So what I wanted to ask you, because you've done numerical weather prediction with your master's work, to some extent your PhD work, although most of that was focused on radar, I have an idea of why observations are important for models, but I want to hear from our expert PhD on this podcast in your own words. Why, why do we need good and robust sensing for accurate predictions? Well, as you know, and probably some of our listeners, numerical weather prediction models, the traditional models that are you know, dynamical physical models rely on initial conditions. And those initial conditions provide all of the information necessary for the atmospheric equations, right? So we have atmospheric equations that define the processes that happen from a physics perspective in, in the atmosphere. And so the atmosphere is a fluid of infinite number of points, right? When you think about it from a grid perspective or even kind of like a Lagrangian flow perspective or whatever, it's got a lot of different points, right? Like it's, it's infinitesimally small. You can subdivide it as many times as you can imagine. Well, the difference in temperatures between the air over a body of water and over land, you know, could be different in a very short distance. The difference in the wind speed near the coast versus 10 miles inland 
could be different, right? So there's a lot of different, you know, micro scale effects happening within our globe, right? So the more data that you have to initiate that model, in general, if you have equations that are representative of actually the processes that are happening, you get a better forecast. Now, we used to debate this for years. A high resolution forecast is not necessarily more accurate. That's a true statement. But what we've seen as a general rule is that as we resolve more of the atmospheric processes, the forecasts do become better over time. Now, if you don't represent those processes well, then you have a problem. There is uncertainty in the forecast, however, right? So I think it was Ed Lorenz that did the initial studies that showed if you slightly change the initial conditions, you get a completely different forecast. This difference grows in time, right? But it's also the uncertainty grows faster for smaller scale features. So a large scale circulation is more predictable and less uncertain, we have higher confidence in a large scale circulation for a longer period of time. So like if we had a two, that's why we can do two week forecasts of large scale temperature shifts and uh, zonal patterns and things like that at a hemispheric level. The small scale features, like I say, a tornado may only be predictable in the plains. For instance, we can probably predict an outbreak a couple days in advance. Can we pinpoint exactly where the tornado will be? This, you know, small swirl? No, not necessarily. But modeling is becoming fine scale enough and we're using some different uh, ensemble techniques that we are starting to figure out within a matter of hours, perhaps a day, where some of the larger scale driven tornadoes will form, particularly in the Midwest. Now, some of the smaller scale tornadoes that spin up as part of a frontal passage in Florida or in the east or something like that, those are more unpredictable because those are smaller scale circulations. And so to drive it back to your question about the sensors and the observations, we really need to have, you know, more observations. It used to be that people were kind of happy. I felt like anyway, in our, in our field that people were kind of happy with our satellite observations and our basic sensing network with upper air soundings and surface stations. But what we're really finding is that no, in, in fact, it does help us to have more observations. Now, you have to design numerical weather prediction to take into account those observations and small changes in the observations don't have major effects the farther you go out on the larger scales, but in the small scales and shorter term forecasts, they do. They do have a big impact. Some companies are looking at improving their sensing in the lower you know, surface boundary area because that's going to aid in unmanned aerial air taxi forecasting, for instance. We know that in agriculture, knowing when inversions are setting in, that can have a major difference on freezing temperatures for a late season crop or something like that. You know, So there's, there's very important reasons why micro scale or finer detail sensing is important. One last point is I honestly don't think we would have had any of the improvements we've had in tropical cyclone forecasting if it were not for satellites. You know, satellites and more satellites and the ability to, to sense that, but also all of the flights of the hurricane hunters and the NOAA planes that go into those hurricanes, 
drastically improve those forecasts. That's all observations. And so even though we have the modeling, it's a right-hand, left-hand thing. You need both of those to really do well. So next week, we're going to talk with Aravan at TerraWatch Space. Three of us are going to have a good satellite sensing discussion. And so we'll save most of the satellite talk for next week. But I bring that question up, you know, because I think it really is important when you look at Hurricane Ian, the track. I mean, even the National Hurricane Center was very open saying there's a lot more uncertainty than normal with this hurricane. And they, they made it plainly clear, don't fixate on the center, you know, of the track. This this thing is is kind of got a mind of its own to some degree. But when each of those models initialize, so if listeners have seen spaghetti plots of models, that's what Jeff's talking about in terms of, you know, each of these models has different initializations. They even have different physics packages that go into them. But I mean, you had the GFS, Noah's GFS model, and I'm not picking on Noah here for a second, but similar to Hurricane Sandy, like Noah's model was a little out to lunch on on at least the track for a while. The GFS had it way biased, way to the west. The European models, for the most part, were pretty consistent, nailing, you know, the Fort Myers and Naples area. In fact, the National Hurricane Center on Saturday, Friday or Saturday, so we're talking like four or five days out, like had Fort Myers and in, in Naples area pegged that far out. Um, the track's going to shift a lot in those days. You know, I'm just thinking about the value of those Hurricane Hunter aircraft. Both NOAA and the Air Force Reserves have Hurricane Hunter aircraft. The value of that data is, is crucial. You've even got new industry being generated. Uh, there's a couple of companies out there, SoFar Ocean and SailDrone are a couple that come to mind that are doing ocean sensing because there are a lot of data voids, right? The surface, the land surface, we have pretty decent, I would say, observations, not everywhere, not every country, but certainly in the US. Um, but the upper air is a huge gap. The oceans are a huge gap and we just, we need a lot more sensing. And so to see some unique sensors used in this hurricane. So I think Noah used some of those sensing in their hurricane forecast prediction. I think about that in the context of why that huge range, we still have, after all these years, we still have this huge range of modeling scenarios for a hurricane, you know, 48 hours out from landfall. And it matters because people make risk decisions based on the track of that hurricane, which is ultimately based on initialization of all these sensing observations. Well, it, I, people have heard of the butterfly effect, right? I, I think often that's misapplied. Well, butterfly flaps its wings in Brazil and causes a hurricane in the Atlantic is kind of how that goes. That's probably a bit extreme. So I spent about a decade of my life, first part of, my, of the Air Force, really talking about ensemble prediction systems and, and helping build out the Air Force's ensemble prediction system. It was the Joint Ensemble Forecast System, Jeff's, <laughs> even though that's my name. Did I that didn't on purpose. It. No, yeah. I, I had nothing to do with the naming. <laughs> it was before me. Anyway, and one of the key components of that project was really working with end users on how to understand forecast uncertainty. And the conclusion I came to after that decade of working in in that arena is that 
at least for our lifetime, forecasts are always going to have some uncertainty. Some forecasts are going to be worse than others, meaning they're going to be so sensitive to the initial conditions that we probably won't have the technology anytime soon to completely inundate the globe with in situ and remotely sensed measurements. It's just, it's just not practical. It's not really possible. But one of the things that I became aware of during that time was something called targeted observations. And I think the Navy was working on this mostly, which was where should we go since upstream to better predict where a, a downstream cyclone is going to going to go. And this targeted observations approach could work with extratropical cyclones or tropical cyclones. And they did a lot of work off the out in the Pacific. Um, and the hurricane hunters in the winter season go fly out there to help the models better predict where the extratropical cyclones are going. Because some of those folks in the Pacific Northwest, like, like Cliff Mass and others, would like to make the point that you know, some of those storms are almost as strong as category one hurricanes, you know, coming into the Pacific Northwest. So I think understanding any cyclone track better is, is, is good. Right. But I think what they've learned, and I, I haven't followed a lot of the, the recent stuff on it, but was that, yes, you can target observations and you can improve forecasts, but you also then have to predict where you need to go target, right? Like you need to figure out where those observations are best implemented and it could be that some of them are over the middle of the pacific right so like we don't you know there's only so many ways to get to the middle of the pacific you either have a satellite flying above it but remote sensing has limits uh you fly an aircraft out to it that's a long way or you have a ship out there you know or an island or something so it's not as straightforward as just oh let's increase the number of sensors because you know, 70 plus percent of the globe is covered by water. So we have some natural limitations. In your time in the Air Force weather community, I recall there being some level of sensitivity analysis being done similar to the targeted observations. Where can sensing of the atmosphere, the land, the cryosphere, where can we improve that the most? You know, do we need more sensors in the Arctic, upper air sensors? Didn't we do something like that in Air Force weather community? Well, it depends on where you want to improve the forecast, where you need to put the sensors, but it's going to also be dependent on the weather flow, right? Like it, it's the weather pattern often dictates where the sensing needs to happen, right? So it's not a static improve our sensing here or not. What I can say, I think in a general sense, and it's, this is supported by the literature, if you go into it, most improvement of numerical weather models, particularly for global models, is is through satellite observations. And so, and that's as a bulk observation source. Oftentimes on a per observation basis, upper air soundings are actually pretty good and helpful. The individual surface observation is less impactful per observation or as a set of type of observations. And is that because the density is already I wouldn't say sufficient, but the density is already somewhat robust at the surface yeah. versus the upper air. Well, no, I, I'd say that, well, the class of observations matters, right? Remote sense satellite observations have the largest impact per types of observations. But that's also a density thing, right? I mean, the satellites have the highest density of, of observations 
of any sensing platform because, I mean, it can sense whole swaths, regional swaths, you know, in one satellite pass, or if it's a geostationary, it covers a whole hemisphere. Yeah. Well, and, and the other thing that, that you have to factor into this is the data assimilation method, right? Like all, there's different data assimilation methods that use different math, different weighting schemes. You know, one of the things that people would, you know, in, in military observations, sometimes we would take a, a military ob in an area of interest and people would wonder, you know, did it have an effect on the model or not? Yeah. So I, I don't want our listeners to think that this is a modeling discussion, but I, I think that really is important to frame why we need sensing and why we need observations. So you've got all these companies out there and, and the limited research that I've been able to do on, on at least a dozen companies so far, a lot of them have their own proprietary sensing platforms baked into their business. They use those proprietary sensing platforms and then combine those with model information from NOAA, from other publicly available model information, and then they make them better, at least we think they make them better, with additional sensing that's not available to the public sector. Hopefully one day, it'd be really great for all these observations to be combined so that humanity could be helped out writ large. But that's where, like, you know, with companies like SailDrone and So Far Ocean, you've got other companies out there. I know Tomorrow.io has agreements with both NOAA and the Air Force to provide, you know, they're launching a satellite soon, or constellation of satellites. Some of that information is going to be making it into those models. So all that to say, like, you got a lot of companies out there seeing the value of sensing, sensing for agriculture, sensing, you know, whether a crop's going to freeze or not, what's the soil moisture. You've got, you know, road network observations, surface observations that the Department of Transportation uses. There's just all kinds of sensing going on. And I think it was in our water security discussion about the importance of hydrological sensors. And that is an area where I think we have a dearth of information. I think Mike Vermillion kind of hinted at this too, to look at flooding effects, particularly in the urban environment. We don't do the best job at modeling hydrological flows and you need observations for that you need river gauges you need stream gauges and so on and so forth the u.s is actually pretty decent in its coverage but globally um you know there's a paper that i'll, I'll highlight in the show notes but it's talking about the disparity and the lack of key hydrological observations but that's an observation system that, you know, it's not talked about a whole lot, but it's really important when it comes to flood predictions, for instance. Yeah. Shifting gears to an innovative area that I find interesting is, um, got a couple of articles that we're going to put in the show notes from the scientific American and USDA. And these by no means are the only instances of people doing this, but the U S forest service, they've been pushing, uh, initiatives to use drones to spot fires and then another one that can set fires. And so you'd ask, why would they want to set fires? Well, if you can set, you know, control burn fires and terrain and, and places that wildland firefighters can't get to, 
uh, then that's helpful. But, you know, we have satellite, we have the, the VIRS and the MODA sensors and GOES uh, has a sensor. You know, there's, there are a number of sensors for detecting fires, but those have some limited resolution. Although the VIRS and MODIS is pretty good. It doesn't have perfect resolution of where the fires are. So, you know, using a drone technology to go up and sense where fires are, it's not just visual detection, it's infrared detection and, you know, and multispectral ways of finding where the fires are. There are ways to use aircraft. They already use manned aircraft to, in real time, map the fire line. You know, where's the fire line relative to the firefighters? That's a huge safety factor. So being able to potentially use drones to do that. There are several SBIRs that federal agencies are releasing to study wildfires with drones. And so using atmospheric sensing techniques to be able to do that, that's pretty interesting. And then there's, there's another article that I'll put in the show notes. They're larger drones, so think beyond the commercial size drones that actually can carry, you know, up to a thousand gallons of water. That can actually, you know, either take off and land and be refilled. I'm not sure if they actually scoop the water themselves, but they're pretty interesting. If you go to the, the link in the show notes, they're they're pretty interesting looking aircraft. They look like, you know, they land. Actually, this one does look like it lands on water. Um, well, that I mean, I th the dual use of these systems I think is really important. And and so as new technology gets developed, whether that's driverless cars. Uh, other autonomous systems, the ability to put a simple weather sensor on some of these systems obviously contributes to this thing called the Internet of Things. But those observations add to the density of weather information that we could use in models. And I know there's other drone companies out there that are doing like emergency management kind of things, for instance, in the aftermath of of disasters, whether it's hurricanes or earthquakes or whatnot, putting weather sensors on those systems is really, I think, key to being a dual use capability. So it's not just a platform for one thing. And, and we saw this even in the satellite world too. There are drone technologies out there though that there's promise that some of these could actually replace balloons one day and it's reusable, you don't lose them, like you, you lose balloons, um, the upper air sounders, but they basically vertical take off and take upper air observations throughout the entire column of the atmosphere. There are limitations to the height of those that they can fly a lot of times, but drones are, I think, a, a big area where the observation sensing can be improved in the future. Yeah, and I think, I guess my bottom line for this morning is that, you know, it's not just new sensors per se. There's a lot of new platforms, a lot of new innovations of platforms such as drones, satellites, you know, we've got the commercialization of space, which is a huge, huge boon for new sensors. You know, there are companies like Spire tomorrow we talked about, you know, that are getting weather sensors in space at a, at a commercial price. There's all of the IOT technology, the internet of things. Cloud computing, while it's not a sensor, it's a platform for computing the data that these sensors produce, and it's becoming democratized. And in a future episode, we'll talk more about, you know, that technology as well. Yeah, I think uh, when I think about all this, I think the Internet of Things is interesting to me because it's going to 
robustify you like vitriol i'm gonna i'm gonna create a new word here instead of just weather arbitrage maybe we can uh we can trademark robustify but it's going to robustify the sensing density the internet of things i think about you know like smart watches for instance yeah you know, i don't have a smart watch but you know i i've played around with a few and uh fitbits and that sort of thing but the ability to measure atmospheric parameters on a cell phone or a smartwatch, there's been some limitations. There are pressure sensors, atmospheric pressure sensors. Some companies have tried to monetize that with very little success so far. But the Internet of Things, I think, is going to be you know, a, a big area where companies can monetize sensing and improve modeling capabilities at the end of the day. Because um, you know, bringing this back to Hurricane Ian, for a second, the better we can sense the atmosphere, the better we can sense our environment, not just the atmosphere, the land, the air, the sea, and from space, the better we can predict the future state of that, the better we can predict hurricanes, for instance. Yeah, I agree. There's so many new innovations in sensing and data. I mean, there's just, it's a pretty exciting time to be honest. Well, we hope you enjoyed today's Triple Point Podcast. If you liked it, subscribe to our newsletter at triplepointpodcast.com. Give us a shout and a five-star rating on your favorite podcast station and tell your friends about it. Or you can email us at triplepointpodcast at the number 81degrees.com. Until next time, have a great week.